This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We note with sadness at the onset of the program today the passing of Trini Lopez. He died this week at the age of 83 from COVID-19. I gather he did not have any risk factors except for the fact that he was 83. Lopez was not a name you heard a lot of in, in recent years, but I can remember so well back in the 1960s. My folks had quite a few Trini Lopez records. He had hits with Lemon Tree and If I Had a Hammer, which was also a later hit for Peter, Paul, and Mary, which gave Trini uh, the credit for the arrangement that made it so successful. I guess originally If I Had a Hammer was um, no more folksy and dirge-like. He was on TV from time to time uh, back in the day. Uh, I know that my mom and, and all of her friends sure thought he was just a handsome dog. I gather he was originally uh, discovered by um, Buddy Holly. And evidently, briefly, after Buddy Holly's death, uh, Trini Lopez became the lead singer of the Crickets. That'll, that little item surprised me in the obituary. When he came out to L.A., he was again discovered, this time by Frank Sinatra. And let's face it, if you're going to get discovered, that's a good guy to be discovered by. Sinatra helped his career, and, and I guess the two men became good pals. I understand there's a documentary that was almost finished before, unfortunately, Trini passed away, about his career and how he refused to change his name. Unlike, say, Frankie Valens, Trini decided that he was a Mexicano, and the name Lopez was just fine. Anyway, for me, hearing his name brings back some pretty good memories. I'm, I'm sorry that he, he is gone, and I'm sorry that we are in a, a COVID pandemic, which is far worse in America than it needs to be. I sure don't know how long uh, Trini Lopez was destined to go before he met his maker, because none of us know that. But I'm also sure that running into coronavirus was why he didn't live even one day longer than he did. There's also news from Florida. I noticed that. Two physicians in Florida, one age 89, one age 57, both passed away having come down with coronavirus on Father's Day. As you might imagine, we'll have more to say about all that as we go along. But I would like to shift gears at the moment to, to pull up an article I've been sitting on for a couple of weeks. It's, the title caught my eye. The piece comes from The Economist, which is very good at covering the world, far better than the, uh, you know, the comparable American uh, news weeklies. In this case, they were taking a look at Tanzania. The subheadline of the piece was, Tanzania's recent economic success may not be what it seems. The main headline of the piece was what grabbed me. It was titled, A Potemkin Economy? It's a term that gets thrown around now and again, and I, I think um, some people think, well, what's this got to do with the battleship Potemkin? Well, in this case, nothing. Well, except for the fact that I'm pretty sure they named the battleship after Grigory Potemkin, who was a minister and lover 
to the Russian Empress Catherine II. Mr. Merlin suggests I put a plug in for the Sergei Eisenstein cinematic classic. Uh, it is it is a remarkable movie. If you've never seen it, I, I think you should. But what we're talking about here today is the Potemkin Village, a term in politics and economics. And I'm quoting from Wikipedia here. Any construction, literal or figurative, whose sole purpose is to provide an external facade to a country which is faring poorly, making people believe that the country is faring better. The term comes from stories of fake, portable villages built solely to impress Empress Catherine II by her former lover Gregory Potemkin during her journey to Crimea in 1787. While modern historians claim accounts of this portable village are surely exaggerated, the original story was that Potemkin erected phony, portable settlements along the banks of the Dnieper River in order to impress the Russian Empress. The structures would be disassembled after she passed, floated down the river on a barge, and reassembled further along her route to be viewed again as if it was an example of yet another village along the river. The story is thought to be mostly myth, but based on the fact that apparently Potemkin did try to spruce up some of the villages that uh, they were passing through along the way. And it's also not clear that he was trying to impress his lover, the Empress, who must have known this was phony baloney, but probably some of the allies and perhaps foes of Russia who are probably accompanying the official visit down to Crimea. Anyway, it is certainly a colorful metaphor, and one which the economist applied to Tanzania. To quote from the article, After the Cold War ended, much of Africa democratized and opened up. Few countries better embodied the feverish hope of the 1990s than Tanzania. It had suffered grievously in the 60s and 70s under its founding leader, Julius Nyeri. A nascent democracy was throttled by one-party rule. An economy with great potential was wrecked by, quote, African socialism, unquote. 11 million peasants were forced into collective villages where they went hungry. Democracy and economic freedom revived Tanzania, so, so says the economist. In 1995, the country held its first free elections in 30 years. As state controls were relaxed, investment flowed in, steady growth more than doubled income per person between 1994 and 2010. But John Magofuli, who was elected president in 2015, has turned back the clock on democracy by locking up opposition MPs and journalists. He has also meddled capriciously in the economy. His government has shaken down firms for cash, arresting their executives, and holding them without bail if they do not pay up. They quote someone from the international law firms as saying, it's almost ransom. Almost? In 2018, when cashew farmers were unhappy with the market price for nuts, Mr. Mugafuli sent in the army with orders to buy up the crop for 65% more than private traders offered. In the finest socialist tradition, notes the magazine, he did not pay the farmers for over 18 months. Since then, the harvest has slumped by 30%. Farmers are reluctant to plant if they don't expect to be paid. I do want to pause at this moment to inject a personal note. I visited Tanzania some 30 years ago and enjoyed it very much. It is the country where you will find Mount Kilimanjaro. It is the country where most of the Serengeti Plain lies. It's the country where the spectacular Ngoro Ngoro Crater gets visited by tourists, and it's where you find Olduvai Gorge. It's a pretty cool place, and I had booked a return to that part of the world to take place next February, which, of course, is now on hold like everything else in the way of international travel. I believe at the moment, Americans, because of our 
woeful status as regards COVID-19 are banned from, I think, 107 nations, just outright banned. Or I guess in some cases, they'll let you in if you're willing to quarantine for 14 days. I, I don't know. I do know that before I arrived in Tanzania, about, oh, I don't know, a, a couple of, actually a couple of months before that, I found myself on a flight, oddly enough, between Burma and Bangladesh. Air travel was a little bit looser back in those days. And I distinctly remember walking up and down the aisle of the aircraft with a Heineken in my hand. When I got, when I got up near the front of the plane, which I guess, I guess there was not a first-class section on, on, uh, on, I think this was Beeman Airlines, the national carrier of Bangladesh. But at the front of the plane, there was clearly a large contingent of Africans. It turned out they were an official contingent. They'd been doing some sort of a goodwill tour in, in the Far East. I believe they actually started their flight in Thailand. But near the front of what was the front row, I looked over and, and saw a man who looked vaguely familiar. A very distinguished gray-haired gentleman. He had the window seat. As I was looking at him, he glanced over and looked at me. If I do say so, he did seem to have friendliness in his eyes. And he looked at me as I was standing there with my beer and sort of nodded his head in a friendly fashion. And I did the same back to him and thought about starting up a conversation, but wasn't quite sure how to do so. So I didn't, unfortunately. When the plane landed in Dhaka, Bangladesh, the flight attendants told all of us behind this contingent of Africans to remain in our seats for the time being. And when you know it, as we looked out the window, a red carpet was being rolled out, a, a literal red carpet. And though I didn't know it at the time, the president of Bangladesh was there to greet the man I'd been looking at an hour or two before, who was, in fact, Jules Nyeri. At that point, the former president of Tanzania. He looked familiar to me because his face did appear in the international media from time to time as a man who was trying a great social experiment in East Africa. He was, by his own admission, a fervent socialist and believed that socialist ideas would transform his nation. He was to conclude near the end of the great experiment he conducted that it, in fact, had failed. Of course, at this point, I would feel free to quote Randall Patrick McMurphy from Over the Cuckoo's Nest, who noted after failing to escape, well, at least I tried. Jules Nyeri did give it his best, but it wasn't enough. Collective farms just did not work well in Tanzania. Nor, if you think about it, have they worked very well just about any place they've been tried. So I'm sympathetic to the pot shots The Economist takes early in this article about, about previous failed efforts in Tanzania. But where this really gets weird is when we come up to the present, and they describe the current president of Tanzania, Mr. Magofuli, who likes to hold executives hostage until their companies pay up. They refer to him as the bulldozer. And people point out that Tanzania has a startling record of economic growth. It's been running at close to 7% a year for the past decade. In fact, Tanzania has just crossed the World Bank's threshold to become a middle-income country. That is one with an average income of more than $1,036 a year. Magnafuli boasts of achieving this goal five years earlier than planned. Yet, notes the magazine, and hence the title of the article, A Potemkin Economy? The growth numbers do not stack up. From 2017, several other indicators, from tax revenues to lending to the private sector, have slowed sharply. The International Monetary Fund raised doubts last year when it said there were serious weaknesses in the growth data. 
The magazine notes that the fund has since backed down in its reporting, but it does report without caveat that Tanzania's growth, 6.8% in 2017, 7% in 2018, 6.3% in 2019, are relying upon official data for their historical figures, said an IMF rep. We're not forensic accountants. Anyway, the point of this piece is that although a lot of people took a look at these numbers of Tanzania's GDP and thought, great, this country is now moving into the middle income. We should invest. It's making it. Despite the fact that, as reported on this program on numerous occasions, the GDP is not a great method for assessing how healthy your society is. Although, it's obviously fair to say that if the GDP is tanking, things are not going well. And wouldn't you know it, the Tanzanian government has decided that, you know, like Potemkin, it would be good to put on a false face that paints a rosier picture than actually exists because there's probably going to be a way to benefit from that. Like, banks may still give you money. Anyway, The Economist notes that in Tanzania, foreign direct investment has dropped by almost half since 2013. And they do put a human face on some of this. They note that when incomes rise in a country, people buy more beer. Yet revenue for Tanzania's biggest brewer fell in both of the last two years. Yes, there's clearly other ways to measure the economy of a country besides the stock market averages. Here's a sad part. According to door-to-door surveys done in 2012 and 2018, the share of Tanzanians who are extremely poor, 49%, did not change at all. That is almost unheard of. And they note because Tanzania's population grows... The number of extremely poor people has increased by about four and a half million. Economist says digging by independent wonks in Tanzania might clear all this up, but challenging the numbers is risky. In 2017, Zito Kabwe, a prominent opposition MP, was arrested for questioning the GDP. In 2018, the government made it a crime to dispute official statistics. It was noted that after an outcry, the law was toned down, but its chilling effect persists. The magazine concluded by saying that Bernard Membe, a former foreign minister who has now defected to the opposition party, says growth is, quote, exaggerated, unquote, and is, in fact, less than 3%. And he was asked, what about Tanzania's middle income status? Mr. Membe replied, a very big joke. And while we do here at Radio Parallax appreciate reaching out to our many listeners in Tanzania, we do realize that most of you are listening here in the U.S. of A. And wouldn't you know it, we're talking about a Potemkin village, we don't have to look over at East Africa. The phrase emerged in the Washington Post just the other day in an article by Philip Rucker titled, The Lost Days of Summer, How Donald Trump Fell Short in Containing the Coronavirus. The piece starts out by referring to White House Chief of Staff Meadows. Didn't list his first name, which has escaped me at the moment. I'm going to assume his full name is Knucklehead Smith Meadows. And I'm banking that at least one or two people in the listenership here remembers the great Paul Winchell. But notes the Washington Post. Meadows no longer holds a daily 8 a.m. meeting that includes health professionals to discuss the raging pandemic. Instead, aides say, he huddles in the morning with a half dozen politically oriented aides. And when the virus comes up, their focus is more on how to convince the public that President Trump has the crisis under control rather than on methodically planning ways to contain it. During those coronavirus meetings, Meadows has repeatedly questioned the scientific consensus that wearing masks helps contain the spread of the novel coronavirus. That's according to officials. He has regularly raised with Fauci and others 
a range of issues on which he thinks Fauci has been wrong. And he personally monitors the infectious disease experts' media appearances. When he catches Fauci sounding out of sync with Trump, the chief of staff admonishes the doctor to stay on message. This is again, according to officials talking to Phil Rucker at the Post. And he's impressed upon Fauci, Burks, and other public health professionals that they should not opine on restrictions or make policy in the media. Interviewed last Saturday, Meadows said he has been appropriately skeptical of information presented to him, but disputed that he is anti-science. Notes Philip Rucker, Meadows is not alone in being skeptical of medical expertise, part of the politics first, science second attitude that has become pervasive inside the White House this summer and which has been championed foremost by Trump. Said a former senior administration official, it's one thing to question science, it's another to attack science. If the administration's initial response to the coronavirus was denial, its failure to control the pandemic since then was driven by dysfunction and resulted in a lost summer, according to the portrait that emerges from interviews with 41 senior administration officials and other people directly involved in or briefed on the response efforts. Many of them spoke only on the condition of anonymity to reveal confidential discussions or to offer candid assessments without retribution. He quotes Thomas Frieden, former director of the CDC, saying, right now we're flying blind. Public health is not getting in the way of economic recovery and schools reopening. Public health is the means to economic recovery and schools reopening. You don't have to believe me. Look all over the world. The U.S. is a laggard. Under mounting pressure to improve the president's re-election chances as his poll numbers decline, the White House have was described as a stand-down order on engaging publicly on the virus through the month of June. You remember this. All of a sudden, they were telling us we need to get back to talking about the economy and how it needs to get back on track. Notes the piece, part of a deliberate strategy to spotlight other issues even as the contagion spread wildly across the country. A senior administration official said there was a desire to focus on the economy in June. It was only in July when the case counts began soaring in a trio of populist Republican-leaning states, Arizona, Florida, and Texas, and polls showed a majority of Americans disapproving of Trump's handling of the pandemic, that the president and his top aides renewed their public activity related to the virus. Skipping ahead in the piece, they note that Trump and many of his top aides talk about the virus not as a contagion that must be controlled through social behavior, but rather as a plague that eventually will disappear on its own. Skipping ahead a bit again, as the nation confronts a once-in-a-century health crisis that has killed at least 158,000 people, this is a few days old, it's now 165 and counting, infecting nearly 5 million, it's now over 5 million, and devastating the economy, the atmosphere in the White House is as chaotic as at any other time in Trump's presidency. In the words of a former senior administration official, an unmitigated disaster. They mentioned Lindsey Graham, who has played golf with Trump throughout the pandemic, arguing to the president that he should change voters' minds about the administration's handling of the crisis by more aggressively blaming the virus on China and stirring hopes for a vaccine. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said that Trump's push for a speedy return to normality has deadly consequences. Asked who was to blame for the pandemic's dark, dark summer, Pelosi said 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Quoting from Pelosi, the delay, the denial, the hoax that it's going to go away magically, a miracle is going to happen, we'll be in church together by Easter, caused death. And the article notes, not surprising, the president has been focused first and foremost on his re-election chances 
and is reactive to the daily or hourly news cycles as opposed to making a long-term strategy. A senior administration official involved in the pandemic response says everybody around Trump is trying to create a Potemkin village for him every day. You're not supposed to see this behavior in liberal democracies that are founded on principles of rule and law. Everyone bends over backward to create this Potemkin village for him and for his inner circle. There were people that tried to resist what Trump thought he wanted to do, but one by one, they've been disappearing. Anthony Scaramucci, himself a guy who disappeared from being former White House communications director, and he's now a Trump critic, said that Trump likes knocking down dominoes, but there's nobody left to stop the cascade of dominoes. He sits in the Oval Office and says, do this or do that, and there was always a domino blocker. It was John Bolton or H.R. McMaster on national security or John Kelly. Now, there are no domino blockers. Skipping toward the end, and I highly recommend you read this piece and just keep reading everything you can about what's going on in the White House. Although Fauci, Burks, and other medical professionals sit on the coronavirus task force, many of the more pressing decisions lately have been made by smaller groups that huddle in the morning and mostly prioritize politics. The cadre includes Meadows, I guess his first name is Mark, not Knucklehead, Senior Advisor Jared Kushner, and Strategic Communications Director Alyssa Farah. The policy process has fallen apart around Meadows, according to four White House officials, with the Chief of Staff fixated on preventing leaks and therefore unwilling to expand meetings to include experts or to share documents with senior staffers who have been excluded from discussions. This breakdown in order, for instance, has given room for trade advisor Peter Navarro to push his ideas directly with Trump and to submit that opinion piece to USA Today attacking Anthony Fauci. I guess this is a little better, maybe a little better, than a government that shakes down firms for cash, arresting their executives and holding them without bail if they don't pay up. But actually, no, actually it's worse. This is holding an entire country hostage. And we're all paying up with blood as an administration fakes that everything is okay. Look at all those nice villages along the Dnieper. I don't know, sometimes we get worked up talking about this stuff on the show, but if you think I'm exaggerating, whether the Washington Post is a bunch of commies, etc., etc., let's go to MSNBC. This is four minutes, which comes from August 12th, 2020. This is four minutes that dovetails with what I just said and which I think you should hear. Mr. McMillan? doing very well in everything, including Corona, as you call it. But let me just tell you, we're, we're getting to an end. We're getting to and The vaccines are ready to rock. We're going to be very, very close to a vaccine. We're ready to distribute. And we're there for the therapeutics, which to me is even more important, frankly, it makes you better. It's more important than the vaccine. Corona, as you call it. OK, you can call it that. It's a virus that's killing everybody. 160,000 or so dead, more to come, a surge expected in the fall. That's President Trump claiming that we are getting to the end of the pandemic, despite a lack of evidence, zero evidence. The only evidence we have is this. Florida added 276 new COVID-19 deaths yesterday. This marks the highest number of deaths reported in a single day by the state since the pandemic began. People are still dying and the numbers are going up. The new record brings the death toll to over 8,600 since March. That's just Florida, Donald. Your state where Mar-a-Lago is, I'm speaking slowly. We're not doing better. 
we're doing worse. It's not getting better. Florida is one of the hardest hit states in the country. But the daily new cases have appeared to decline in recent days. However, some experts believe testing declined in part due to the hurricane that hit Florida, which disrupted some of the state's COVID-19 response effort. But you see, people are still dying in Florida and those numbers are going up. In fact, they went so high, we've now reached a record in deaths and that's bad. That means it's not getting better, it's getting worse. And the lies that you tell every day could actually lead to more deaths. If people listen to you, they would put bleach in their bodies. If people listen to you, they might go to school even if they have vulnerabilities or they could bring it home and give it to their families. So we need to figure out how to talk about the science here and get your lies out of the way. Meanwhile, in Georgia, a record 137 people died from the coronavirus yesterday their highest single-day death toll since the start of the pandemic, surpassing the state's record from last week. It's been a week since Georgia reopened its public schools. And now a school district north of Atlanta has ordered 925 students, teachers, and staff to self-quarantine after dozens tested positive for the coronavirus. Cherokee County School District Superintendent Brian Hightower said in a statement that there had been 59 positive COVID-19 tests among students and staff since the August 3rd reopening. That's another lie that you tell if we could just pause for a second, because the president says that young people just somehow I don't know. They just don't get it. They're strong and they just get right through it. And actually, there are young people. There are very young people, children who have died from the coronavirus. And the stupidity of your statement is that they go to school where there are older people working at the schools, teaching them. And then those young people go home and bring it to their families and kill people. The stupidity of the things that come out of your mouth are staggering, and it is leading to the death of many Americans. Yes, the fact of the matter is, the vaccines are not ready to rock. The government is not ready to distribute this vaccine, which does not yet exist. And they are, in fact, not there on therapeutics to cure the disease. We do have one theory here at the show that there is something that may have been distracting the president of late. He did devote some energy when he made that recent trip to South Dakota, inquiring about how it is he might get himself placed up there on the monument. And I know that sounds like an onion headline, but the fact of the matter is that White House aides reached out to South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem last year about the process of adding additional presidents to Mount Rushmore. When Trump showed up there for the July 4th weekend, the governor presented him with a sculpture. Well, in this case, a four-foot replica of Mount Rushmore that included Donald Trump. She revealed that in a 2018 interview, the two struck up a conversation about the sculpture in the Oval Office during their first meeting, where the president said, you know, it's my dream to have a face on Mount Rushmore. The governor thought he was joking and started laughing, but Trump wasn't laughing. He was totally serious. 
But then in his mind, he's done such a great job with the coronavirus and the economy both. Why shouldn't he be up there? He told the United Nations no presidency in history has done as much as he had. And he believes it. And we would point out, that's not just from ignorance. That's not just from narcissism. We have another dimension mixed into this. Dementia. A demented president says, I think I should be up on Mount Rushmore. What can we do about that? A demented president says the vaccines are ready to rock. You'd have to be a demented president to say that you've been treated worse than Lincoln when Lincoln was assassinated. If instead of listening to Anthony Fauci, you invite Fox News commentator Laura Ingraham into the Oval Office to uh, discuss hydroxychloroquine, your elevator does not go to the top floor. If you're the kind of guy that watches Fox News and sees some of the ads on Fox News, such as My Pillow, and think, well, the chief executive for that product must be the kind of guy I should talk to, I'd say you're not playing with a full deck. If you then take the advice of that guy, Mike Lindell, and, and invite in Andrew Whitney, a biopharmaceuticals executive on the board of a company called Phoenix, which is pitching to Trump a botanical extract called oleandrin for the treatment of coronavirus. You're crazy. This gets worse. Apparently, Andrew Whitney has personally made overtures to senior leaders at the FDA, including Commissioner Stephen Hahn, an effort to get the agency to approve oleandrin as a treatment for coronavirus. I got curious about oleandrin and went to look for some data on it and found the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center has a blurb on it. But here's what it says about this whole botanicals page. Sloan Kettering Cancer Center makes no warranties nor express or implied representations whatsoever regarding the accuracy, completeness, timeliness, comparative or controversial nature, or usefulness of any information contained or referenced in this website. Anyway, with that kind of ringing endorsement, do you suspect that Oleandrin's going to be on the front line of the battle to fight coronavirus? I don't think so. We need a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got plenty more. Stick around. Hi, this is James Brown, soul brother number one, always fighting. Now I'm fighting for your life. I'm fighting for your life because if you use drugs, you better leave it alone. Drugs are contagious. They're killers. Every drug is a killer. Stay away from drugs. Drugs will take your life away. And if you want to live, stay away from drugs because they are super bad. Super bad.